right, hello and welcome to Solid 6063. It's an episode, it's going to be an interesting one because a bit of stuff has happened since the last. It is the 1st of October, so it's an appropriate you know, first day of the month. Get this out of the way. I finally edited and uploaded the most recent episode of Banana Split. So that took, a, I guess, about a week to get done. I do so get distracted easily. But there was also the fact that the... Oz Comic Con was on, so I might mention that briefly as well. But yeah, mainly in my life, it's been a, turned upside down a fair bit due to the fact that on Friday, just gone, my boss was like, yeah, we don't have enough budget for you guys. There, were, there was me and a few others that were let go, unfortunately, due to a downturn in the glass industry. As much as he was hinting at it, I completely ignored him. He had mentioned before that he would get me in touch with someone if it did get too slow, and he did that. I really should have seen the signs and had something waiting, or at least gone for something else. I was just so unprepared, and got caught flat-footed, and it's been, this is now day two of, you know, Monday, Tuesday, where I've not done any work, and I didn't have any savings. They've just been slowly disappearing into nothing. So I've literally got, well, up until I got my last pay from the glass group i had five dollars in the bank and because i only did four days last week yeah not great maybe 800 in there so i'm feeling pretty low it's been a rough two days didn't do anything really other than go to one agency this morning to register and i'm not sure i'll get that job for a bunch of reasons my driving history isn't as clean as i thought it was uh both jobs that I thought I had a chance with turned me down. The ones that I went for straight away, including the one that Gus gave me a really good reference to. That makes sense. He knows the guy personally, uses his drivers sometimes. He's in a company where they run around and deliver LPG bottles. That sounded fun, physical, but plenty to do. And unfortunately, when he asked for my driving history, wasn't too impressed. Uh, being clean for like, make it sound like a recovering drug addict but it's a bit like that my addiction was uh, among other things to speed the in the sense of driving quickly not swallowing pills i'm sure i've tried something speed like back in the day never really caught but yeah again like well see i never really had a substance abuse issue as young you try different things that's cool but with speeding it definitely took me a long time to let go of that habit and i'm sure i'll get another ticket one day it's just one of those things but i've definitely improved with my behavior and it's been like three years since I've had a ticket for anything. Longer than that with a speeding ticket because, God, the last time I got that unlucky, I think I was driving to one of those obstacle races. I had Karen in the car, yeah, it was at least five years ago when I was fit. But, yeah, I did have a couple of, twice I got done with my phone in my hand. I was like, you're kidding. It's just the worst. But once I was caught at the lights... And the other time, I thought, well, this is the second time. So I'd been pretty careful since then. I was looking out for bikes and all that sort of thing. I'm on the M2. I go to check my GPS. And because it's in my hand, that was enough for a sneaky bike that had parked on an on-ramp and was looking down into the uh, the M2, which I just figured was one of the few places you could get away with it. But uh, no, sir. Especially not in a truck with a huge amount of, it's like a fishbowl everyone could see right in. So yeah, I'm surprised I still haven't been caught on those apparently... Uh, very clever cameras on the M4 that look for people on their phone. I am somewhat aware of the general area they're in, but one day it's going to catch me unaware. So, yeah, even though it's been cleaned for two or three years, the fact that there was those two phone, what would you call it, driving while using a mobile or handheld device, they uh, knocked it on the head. He said, nope, sorry. I don't even know if he turned it into HR. I got a feeling he just didn't like it himself and didn't want to say 
like, no, I don't want it. He just wanted to say, no, look, it was my company. Either way, I'm out and say, yeah, I guess I was lucky running straight into the job with the glass group and before that, Nevase, given sketchy past I've had driving. I know it had knocked me back the last time. I'd really been on the skids looking for work and then I ended up being okay, but thought it had been long enough. But that stuff really does haunt you. So, you know, karma is a bitch. I am going for another interview on Thursday morning, which is going to be interesting. I booked that for 9am before I found out that I had a job that wants me to start tomorrow, Thursday and Friday early in the morning. It's not the job I really want, want, but it is a job and that's all that counts. And uh, big thanks to Dave Sai or Dave Zuckerberg or whatever you want to call him on Facebook. Uh, I don't know if I'll drop his real name here because I haven't known it for so long. I'm not just going to throw it out there into the internet. So yeah, he, I just messaged a few people I knew that were in Sydney and were in areas where I could probably get work. And he came through big time for me. It was a bit of back and forth with the agency that they use. There was some confusion and crosswires. But eventually, yeah, I'm in there tomorrow morning to get signed on and then go to the actual warehouse to start picking and packing, which is definitely not an area I ever wanted to be in. But at least I'm not checking meters or assembling furniture. So, because that, or the other job I was going to go for tomorrow until that came through was basically just being in a warehouse and doing heavy lifting. That was the job description. Heavy lift is needed, over 20, 30 kilos, you know, at least. And uh, you're just all day picking up boxes. So I'm sure there'll be some lifting involved with this job, but I don't think it's going to break my back. And I have no idea what it's going to be like, so I'll report back soon. Meanwhile, it's just going to be really tricky because I promised him I'd be full gung-ho for this. And he said, yeah, I'll do the best I can. And it seems like they came through. And I'm going to have to find a way to still go to that interview on Thursday because that's the job I want. It's back in a truck. It's 75K. It'll get me back in a reasonably comfortable situation. You know, not where life could have gone, but it's considering my options and skill set. I think that's probably about as good as it gets. This pick-a-packer thing, I don't know. I'll see. Maybe I'll like it. Hopefully I do, and I can just go all in and eventually go full-time, or I don't know. On the face of it, I can't see how it's going to fall in love with it or anything. But Dave's a nice guy. I get to work with him, so that that helps. Uh, I've only really got to know him through Facebook memes. Uh, He's a DJ on the side, and he's really good at what he does. Not He did a really good set at one of the parties I went to. It was the last Neko Nation. Yeah, so he just blew the head off most of the people that were there. Because he does a lot of retro stuff, but then remixes it and really kicks it in a high gear. So I happened to be walking back after the event to the car, and he was on the same path, and we had a good chat. And that's really the only time I'd ever talked to him properly, that one conversation. I had met him once before at another party. He runs Rocket Science and sets those parties up. But that was for like maybe five minutes about five years ago. So it's weird the people you run into, even though you haven't really built up a huge bond, they still come through for you. So it's just that kind of, as far as I know, so f- up to this point, he's been a genuine nice guy and I can't fault him at all. So yeah, 63, I'm going to talk about a bunch of stuff because I've got all these browser tabs open for content for this podcast because it's stuff that I can't really go deep into when I'm talking on Banana Split. We, we brush over things, bring stuff up and briefly discuss it for the laughs and then keep going. Um, whereas this, I like to think I can go a little more of a deep dive, explore things, or at least read an entire article. I wouldn't put the other two guys 
through that. It was weird enough when we were reading out the Danny Katz stuff, Modern Guru. That was long enough, even though it's only a few paragraphs. It works on Tell Him Steve Dave, but when Brian usually reads an article or something, or a Wikipedia entry to get some background on stuff as they talk about it. But that, again, is usually quite quick. I was getting... I was, it's so frustrating because I did like the glass job. They might bring me back when things pick up. I don't know if I'll go back because hopefully by then I do have another position that's giving me just as much income and kind of work that I want to do where I can listen to Tell Him Steve Day for a start. I was getting so close to caught up. I was maybe oh, 15 episodes away. So that's... There'll be no podcast listening... While picking and packing, I'm sure of that. Make the best of it. Found this article. I like to start from the beginning because I got stuff from months ago. This popped up and it seems to be in the ballpark of issues I like to discuss, which is, it's written by James Hibbard and it's on Entertainment Weekly, which is a bit of a mainstream cheesy, uh, what do you call it, brand. A lot of the videos they do are very, they're just so slick and overproduced and cheesy. Like it's hard to, like the guy presenting the clip attached to this article, he's got this real action man G.I. Joe face, like everything is manicured, every hair on his little beard and every tiny little, it's just so fake. He just basically looks like he's been pulled out of an action figure box and shoved on the screen. Yeah, he's got a good voice, good for him. I guess I'm just jealous that I'm uh, not as pretty. Yeah, it's just, uh, there's nothing raw or uh, edgy about it. <laughs> and sometimes that's all right, which is ironic because he's discussing the walkout that the actor, the problem with this is it's, the name, I never quite get it right, and I'm bad enough with names. They give me a name like this, Joaquin Phoenix. I know it's not Joaquin, but basically he is, uh, he got stumped in an interview. He got asked the question, which I'm surprised he hadn't been asked up to that point, because it's been discussed a lot in articles, where it was, it was like, you know, this could inspire a lot of people that are the kind of insular incel toxic crazy types that might are you worried that this will be an inspiration for people to go out and cause harm and he just said no no don't do that and left he left for an hour warner brothers pr person convinced him to come back and his excuse was i just wasn't prepared i I hadn't really thought about that how did i do like he was just really off kilter I, i don't have the actual article with me by the guy that he walked out on it was an interesting response he just came across as a lot more vulnerable and less sure of himself than I would expect. And it's certainly not... Usually when someone walks out, they're sure about it. They're like, screw you, I'm out of here, done. But when he came back, he was all like apologetic and it just seems like a scattered mess. It's like watching interviews with him. I came into it not knowing who was talking because the the video started and I was on a different browser and I could just hear some mumbling deep voice going, "It's, it's, well, you see, just all over the place, like a dog's breakfast. And then I flicked over to it. I'm like, oh, that's Harlequin Phoenix. He's... Not sounding really switched on, but he does a lot of interviews. I suppose it catches up with him, and they're eccentric, and these actors, they just do what they want to do. It's almost like watching an interview with, uh, hello be thy name, Jeff Goldblum. He's a joy to watch. He's a fucking mess, like the one where they asked him about the Spider-Man controversy. He just went off in some bizarre direction with that, but hey, it's fun to watch. (laughs) And he's going to be back in the next Jurassic Park movie, apparently, along with Sam Neill and the original female actress who was in the first film. So that'll be interesting to see. It'll be basically like the third one writ large because dinosaurs are out and about on the mainland. We've got this Joker director blames far left for film's controversy. Outrage is a commodity. Joker director Todd Phillips blamed the far left for some of the criticisms of his film in a new interview. Phillips opined to The Rap 
that outrage addicts are unfairly attacking his Warner Brothers film as their controversy du jour. I think it's because outrage is a commodity. I think it's something that has been a commodity for a while. I've no idea what he really sounds like, so I'm going with this. What's outstanding to me in this discourse, in this movie, is how easily the left can sound like the far right when it suits their agenda. It's really been eye-opening for me. Joker, opening October the 4th, is arguably the most controversial film of the year, even though it hasn't even opened in theaters yet. Well, I think it has now. If you can hear a scratching, that's a cat trying to get into my room. Soon, Gizmo, soon. The film garnered raves when it was premiered at the Venice Film Festival and won the top prize. Well, that's a good sign. Critic reviews were largely positive, 75% so far on Rotten Tomatoes. Though those fuckers won't let my friend and legit critic Travis Johnson get a certified fresh reviewer ID. I guess apparently they're only letting Americans on there now, so fuck Rotten Tomatoes, as we say on Banana Split. Many express concerns about the film's content. The film offers a grounded portrayal of the titular Joker as a loner who feels mistreated by society and escalates to acts of violence against the wealthy and becomes a hero of sorts to the working class. Isn't it good to have these discussions about these movies about violence? Why is that a bad thing if the movie does lead to a discourse about it? We didn't make the movie to push buttons. I literally described to Joaquin at one point in these three months as like, look... Look at this as a way to sneak a real movie into the studio system under the guise of a comic book film. It wasn't, we want to glorify this behavior. It was literally like, let's make a real movie with a real budget and we'll call it the fucking Joker. And that's what it was. Earlier this week, the families of victims of 2012 mass shootings in a movie theater penned a letter to Warner Brothers expressing their concerns about the film and urged the studio to use its influence to help make society safer. In addition, a U.S. Army base has recently warned service members of dark web chatter making a specific credible threat against an unspecified movie theater. Warner Brothers has replied that our company has a long history of donating to victims of violence, including Aurora, and in recent weeks our parent company joined other business leaders to call on policymakers to enact bipartisan legislation to address this epidemic. At the same time, Warner Brothers believes that one of the functions of storytelling is to provoke difficult conversations and complex issues. Make no mistake, neither the fictional character Joker nor the film is an endorsement of real-world violence of any kind. It is not the intention of the film, the filmmakers or the studio to hold this character up as a hero. Phoenix walked out of an interview when asked about the controversy then later defended the film. Well, I think that for most of us, you're able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Phoenix has said, and those that aren't capable of interpreting anything in the way that they may want to. People misinterpret lyrics from songs. They misinterpret passages from books. So I don't think it's the responsibility of a filmmaker to teach the audience morality or the difference between right and wrong. I mean, to me, I think that's obvious. And that's it. I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of comments there. I'm not going to start picking and choosing them. It's a huge debate and one that's uh, still going about the responsibility of cinema and whether it should be pushing people in a certain direction or not. I side with uh, the makers that say, look, let's just make this the way we need it to be entertaining, to tell a good story. Sure, certain therapists prescribe certain movies to get people where they think they need to be, uh, which I love. But sometimes you just want to do something really creative and interesting. It doesn't always have to start a new religion. So I'm going to go back a bit further, though. I've got an article here. Wow, this is old. 
It's from February the 2nd, 2014. And I've been meaning to get through this. It's on the New Yorker, which I'm sure is a content treasure trove. And uh, I don't know if they have all of their articles online. Because it's been around for about, God, what, 50 years? I don't know. I, just, I remember seeing old New Yorkers lying around for a long time. I'll have to look that up, but it doesn't really matter. At this point, I'm going to read something by Rachel Aviv. And it's about a chap named Tyrone Hayes. And his, the headline is Valuable Reputation. After he said that a chemical was harmful, its maker pursued him. Which sounds a bit like that new movie coming out where he looks really overweight. Uh, Mark Ruffalo playing a lawyer that ends up taking down... It's not DuPont. It's some chemical company that's basically poisoning the water in a small town. It's not Flint, Michigan, is it? It's somewhere where they realise, like, hang on, we've got a massive problem here. People were getting sick left, right and centre for generations because of the runoff from this chemical plant. And it took one good man to stand up to it and make a difference. And obviously the community that rallied around him. So, yeah, it looks like a good, good flick. It's just a pity that he had to turn into the blob to do it. But again, that's part of making it real, so good on him. The opposite with Hoaquin Phoenix, where he lost a lot of weight. And in the little video I caught, he's talking about it, almost getting a disorder where he's watching his you know, how many calories he's eating each day, and it just, he became, like, obsessed. And he did, it was almost a transformation akin to Christian Bale, where he's just dropped down to almost machinist levels of skinny, and he felt like a, a swimmer, fluid through the air. Like, he just started going on this random rant about how it made his body feel, which I thought was pretty cool. Anyway, here we are about Tyrone. He's a large, well-dressed black man with a really cool handlebar moustache that goes down all the way and meets his chin. In 2001, seven years after joining the biology faculty of the University of California, Berkeley, Tyrone stopped talking about his research with people he didn't trust. Tyrone instructed the students in his lab where he was raising 3,000 frogs to hang up the phone if they heard a click. A signal that a third party might be on the line. Other scientists seemed to remember events differently, he noticed, so he started carrying an audio recorder to meetings. The secret to a happy, successful life of paranoia, he liked to say, is to keep careful track of your persecutors. Well, this sounds fun. Three years earlier, Syngenta, one of the largest agribusinesses in the world, had asked Hayes to conduct experiments on the herbicide atrazine, which is applied to more than half the corn in the United States. Hayes was 31, and he had already published 20 papers on the endocrinology of amphibians. David Wake, a professor in Hayes' department, said that Hayes may have had the greatest potential of anyone in the field. But when Hayes discovered that atrazine might impede the sexual development of frogs, his dealings with Syngenta became strained. And in November 2000, he ended his relationship with the company. Hayes continued studying it on his own and soon became convinced that Syngenta representatives were following him to conferences around the world. He worried that the company was orchestrating a campaign to destroy his reputation. He complained that whenever he gave public talks, there was a stranger in the back of the room taking notes. On a trip to Washington DC in 2003, he stayed at a different hotel each night. He was still in touch with a few Syngenta scientists and after noticing that they knew many details about his work and his schedule, he suspected they were reading his emails. To confuse him, he asked the student to write misleading emails from his office computer while he was travelling. He sent backup copies of his data and notes to his parents in sealed boxes. In an email to one Syngenta scientist, he wrote that he had risked my reputation, my name, some even say my life, for what I thought and now know is right. A few scientists had previously done experiments that anticipated Hayes' work, but no one had observed such extreme effects 
In another email, he acknowledged that it might appear he was suffering from a Napoleon complex or delusions of grandeur. Yeah, I'm on the fence right now. I don't know where it's going. Sounds a bit like my mum at this point, but hopefully it all comes good. For years, despite his achievements, Hayes had felt like an interloper. In academic settings, it seemed to him that his colleagues were operating according to a frivolous code of manners. They spoke so formally, fashioning themselves as detached authorities, and rarely admitted what they didn't know. He'd grown up in Columbia, South Carolina, in a neighbourhood where fewer than 40% of residents finish high school. Until sixth grade, when he was accepted into a program for the gifted in a different neighbourhood, he'd never had a conversation with a white person his age. He and his friends used to tell one another how white people do this, white people do that pretending that they knew. After he switched schools and took advanced courses, the black kids made fun of him, saying, oh, he thinks he's white. He was fascinated by the idea of metamorphosis and spent much of his adolescence collecting tadpoles and frogs and crossbreeding different species of grasshoppers. Sounds like a cool kid to hang out with. He raised frog larvae on his parents' front porch and examined how lizards respond to changes in temperature by using a blower dryer and light by placing them in a doghouse. His father, a carpet layer, used to look at his experiments and shake his head and say, there's a fine line between a genius and a fool. That's very uh, wise for a uh, carpet layer. Hayes received a scholarship to Harvard, and in 1985 began what he calls the worst four years of his life. Many of the other black students had gone to private schools and come from affluent families. He felt disconnected and ill-equipped. He was placed on academic probation until he became close to a biology professor who encouraged him to work in his lab. Five foot three and thin, he distinguished himself by dressing flamboyantly, like Prince. The Harvard Crimson, in an article about a campus party, wrote that he looked as if he belonged in the rock-and-ready atmosphere of New York's danceteria. He thought about dropping out, but then he started dating a classmate, Catherine Kim, a Korean-American biology major from Kansas. He married her two days after he graduated. They moved to Berkeley, where Hayes enrolled in the university's program in integrative biology. He completed his PhD in three and a half years and was immediately hired by his department. He was a force of nature, incredibly gifted and hard-working. Paul Barber, a colleague who is now a professor at UCLA, says. Hayes became one of only a few black, tenured biology professors in the country. He won Berkeley's highest award for teaching and ran the most racially diverse lab in his department, attracting students who were the first in their families to go to college. Nigel Noriega, a former graduate student, said that the lab was a comfort zone for students who were just suffocating at Berkeley because they felt alienated from academic culture. Hayes had become accustomed to steady praise from his colleagues, but when Syngenta cast doubts on his work, he became preoccupied by old anxieties. He believed that the company was trying to isolate him and play on my insecurities, the fear that I'm not good enough, that everyone thinks I'm a fraud. He told colleagues that he suspected that Syngenta held focus groups on how to mine his vulnerabilities. Roger Liu, who's worked in Hayes' lab for a decade, both as undergraduate and as a graduate student, said... In the beginning, I was really worried for his safety, but then I couldn't tell where the reality ended and the exaggeration crept in. That's what I thought. Lou and several other former students said they had remained sceptical of Hayes' accusations until last summer when an article appeared in Environmental Health News in partnership with 100 reporters that drew on Syngenta's internal records. Hundreds of Syngenta's memos, notes and emails had been unsealed following the settlement in 2012 of two class-action suits brought by 23 Midwestern cities and towns that accuse Syngenta of concealing atrazine's true dangerous nature and contaminating their drinking water. Stephen Tillery, the lawyer who argued the cases, said Tyrone's work gave us the scientific basis for the lawsuit. Hayes has devoted the past 15 years to studying atrazine, and during that time, scientists around the world have expanded on his findings, suggesting 
the herbicide is associated with birth defects in humans as well as in animals. The company's documents show that while Hayes was studying atrazine, Syngenta was studying him, as he had long suspected. Syngenta's public relations team had drafted a list of four goals. The first was discredit Hayes. In a spiral-bound notebook, Syngenta's communications manager, Sherry Ford, who referred to Hayes by his initials, wrote that the company could prevent citing of TH data by revealing him as non-credible. So there you go, he wasn't crazy. It was just really smart, which we knew. So, God, I feel, I'm already feeling guilty. He was a frequent topic of conversation at company meetings. Syngenta looked for ways to exploit Hayes' false problems. If TH involved in scandal, Enviros will drop him, Ford wrote. She observed that Hayes grew up in a world that wouldn't accept him. Needs adulation, doesn't sleep, scarred for life. What's motivating Hayes? Basic question. Syngenta, which is based in Basel, sells more than $14 billion worth of seeds and pesticides a year and funds research at some 400 academic institutions around the world. When Hayes agreed to do experiments for the company, which at that time was part of a larger corporation, Novartis, the students in his lab expressed concerns that biotech companies were buying up universities and that industry funding would compromise the objectivity of their research. Hayes assured them that his fee, $125,000, would make their lab more rigorous. He could employ more students, buy new equipment, and raise more frogs. Though his lab was well-funded, federal support for research was growing increasingly unstable, and like many academics and administrators, he felt that he should find new sources of revenue. I went into it as if I were a painter, performing a service, Hayes told me. You commissioned it, and I come up with the results, and you do what you want with them. It's your responsibility, not mine. Atrazine is the second most widely used herbicide in the US, where sales are estimated at $300 million a year. Introduced in 1958, it is cheap to produce and controls a broad range of weeds. Glyphosate, which is produced by Monsanto, is the most popular herbicide. A study by the Environmental Protection Agency found that without atrazine, the national corn yield would fall by 6%, creating an annual loss of nearly $2 billion. Wow, that's a lot for 6%. But the herbicide degrades slowly in soil and often washes into streams and lakes where it doesn't readily dissolve. Atrazine is one of the most common contaminants of drinking water. At an estimated 30 million Americans exposed to trace amounts of the chemical. In 1994, the EPA, expressing concerns about atrazine's health effects, announced that it would start a scientific review. Syngenta assembled a panel of scientists and professors through a consulting firm EcoRisk, to study the herbicide. Hayes joined the group. His first experiment showed that male tadpoles exposed to atrazine developed less muscle surrounding their vocal cords, and he hypothesized that the chemical had the potential to reduce testosterone levels. I've been losing lots of sleep over this, he wrote one EcoRisk member in the summer of 2000. I realise the implications and, of course, want to make sure that everything possible has been done and controlled for. After a conference call, he was surprised by the way the company kept critiquing what seemed to be trivial aspects of the work. Hayes wanted to repeat and validate his experiments and complained that the company was slowing him down and that independent scientists would publish similar results before he could. He decided to resign from the panel, writing in a letter that he didn't want to be scooped. I fear my reputation will be damaged if I continue my relationship and associated low productivity with Novartis, he wrote. It will appear to my colleagues that I have been part, but planned to bury important data. Hayes repeated the experiment using funds from Berkeley and the National Science Foundation. Afterwards, he wrote to the panel, although I do not want to make a big deal out of it until I have all the data analysed and decoded. 
I feel I should warn you that I think something very strange is coming up in these animals. After dissecting the frogs, he noticed that some could not be clearly identified as male or female. They had both testes and ovaries. Others had multiple testes that were deformed. In January 2001, Syngenta employees and members of the EcoRisk panel travelled to Berkeley to discuss Hayes' new findings. Syngenta asked to meet with him privately, but Hayes insisted on the presence of his students, a few colleagues and his wife. He had previously had an amiable relationship with the panel. He had enjoyed taking long runs with the scientists who had supervised it, and he began the meeting in a large room at Berkeley's Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, as if he were hosting an academic conference. He wore a new suit and brought in catered meals. After lunch, Syngenta introduced a guest speaker, a statistical consultant who listed numerous errors in Hayes' report, concluded that the results were not statistically significant. Hayes' wife, Catherine Kim, said the consultant seemed to be trying to make Tyrone look as foolish as possible. Wake, the biology professor, said that the men on the eco-risk panel looked increasingly uncomfortable. They were experienced enough to know that the issues the statistical consultant were raising were routine and ridiculous. He said, a couple of glitches were presented as if they were the end of the world. I've been a scientist in academic settings for 40 years and I've never experienced anything like that. They were after Tyrone. Hayes later emailed three of the scientists telling them I was insulted. I felt railroaded and in fact felt that some dishonest and unethical activity was going on. When he explained what had happened to Theo Colbin, the scientist who had popularised the theory that industrial chemicals could alter hormones, she advised him, don't go home the same way twice. Colbin was convinced that her office had been bugged and that industry representatives followed her. She told Hayes to keep looking over your shoulder to be careful of whom he left in his lab. She warned him, you've got to protect yourself. And that's probably where it all started. Hayes published his atrazine work in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a year and a half after quitting the panel. He wrote that what he called hermaphroditism was induced in frogs by exposure to atrazine at levels 30 times below what the EPA permits in water. He hypothesized that the chemical could be a factor in the decline in amphibian populations, a phenomenon observed all over the world. In an email sent the day before publication, he congratulated the students on his, in his lab for taking the ethical stance by continuing the work on their own. We and our principles have been tested, and I believe... We have not only passed, but exceeded expectations, he wrote. Science is a principle, a process of seeking truth. Truth cannot be purchased, thus truth cannot be altered by money. The professorship is not a career, but rather a life's pursuit. The people with whom I work daily exemplify and remind me of this promise. He and his students continued the work, travelling to farming regions throughout the Midwest, collecting frogs in ponds and lakes, and sending 300 pails of frozen water back to Berkeley. In papers in Nature environmental health perspectives, Hayes reported that he had found frogs with sexual abnormalities in atrazine-contaminated sites in Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Now that I've realized what we are getting into, I cannot stop it, he wrote to a colleague. It is an entity of its own. Hayes began arriving at his lab at 3.30 in the morning and staying 14 hours. He had two young children who sometimes assisted by color-coding containers. According to company emails, Syngenta was distressed by Hayes' work. Its public relations team compiled a database of more than 100 supportive third-party stakeholders, including 25 professors who could defend atrazine or act as spokespeople on Hayes. The PR team suggested that the company purchase Tyrone Hayes as a search word on the internet, so that any time someone searches for Tyrone's material, the first thing they see is our material. Tricky, I didn't know you could do that. The proposal was later expanded to include the phrases amphibian Hayes, atrazine frogs, 
and frog feminization. Searching online for Tyrone Hayes now brings up an advertisement that says Tyrone Hayes not credible. Okay, so now I have to um, Google that, which should be pretty easy. Are they still putting that ad out there, you know, five years later? There we go. Tyrone Hayes, there's a whole uh, little bio there. He's on Wikipedia. So he's, he's done well. There's some more fancy suits on him. He wasn't always a big guy. Some of the older photos, he looks quite slim. Born in 1967. Yeah, I can't see an ad. Atrazine, the strange case of Dr. Tyrone Hayes. He's a speaker for TED Talks. There's nothing on here that sort of makes him look bad. There's no ads that I can see. I do have ad block on, so I might have something to do with it. But yeah, it all looks pretty good for him at the moment, so at least his reputation has been somewhat restored even. There's a lot of YouTube links, so I'll have to watch one of his talks, but then I'll be more disappointed with how wrong I'm getting his voice. There's no way I can do a large black man voice anyway, not come off as racist. I'll just go with like Tweedy English Professor. In June 2002, two months after Hayes' first atrazine publication, Syngenta announced in a press release that three studies had failed to replicate Hayes' work. In a letter to the editor of the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, eight scientists on the EcoRisk panel wrote that Hayes' study had little regard for assessment of causality, lacked statistical details, misused the term dose, made vague and naive references, and misspelled a word. They said that claims that his paper had significant implications for environmental and public health had not been scientifically Demonstrated, David Malloy, a freelance science columnist who runs a non-profit organization to which Syngenta has given tens of thousands of dollars, wrote an article for Fox News, of course, titled Freaky Frog Fraud, which picked apart Hayes' paper in Nature, saying that there wasn't a clear relationship between the concentration of atrazine and the effect on the frog. Malloy characterized Hayes as a junk scientist and dismissed these lame conclusions as just another of Hayes' tricks. Wow, he really went for the jugular. Fussy critiques of scientific experiments have become integral to what is known as the Sound Science Campaign, an effort by interest groups and industries to slow the pace of regulation. David Michaels, the Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Safety and Health, wrote in his book Doubt is Their Product that corporations have developed sophisticated strategies for manufacturing and magnifying uncertainty. In the 80s and 90s, the tobacco industry fended off regulations by drawing attention to questions about the science of secondhand smoke. Many companies have adopted this tactic. Industry has learned that debating the science is much easier and more effective than debating the policy, Michaels wrote. In field after field, year after year, conclusions that might support regulation are always disputed. Animal data are deemed not relevant, human data not representative, and exposure data not reliable. In the summer of 2002, two scientists from the EPA visited Hayes' lab and reviewed his atrazine data. Thomas Steger, one of the scientists, told Hayes, your research can potentially affect the balance of risk versus benefit for one of the most controversial pesticides in the US. But an organization called the Center for Regulatory Effectiveness petitioned the EPA to ignore Hayes' findings. Hayes has killed and continues to kill thousands of frogs in unvalidated tests of no proven value, the petition said. The center argued that Hayes' studies violated the Data Quality Act passed in 2000, which requires that regulatory decisions rely on studies that meet high standards for quality, objectivity, utility, and integrity. Well, that makes sense. The center is run by an industry lobbyist and consultant for Syngenta, Jim Tozzi. Don't need that sound. Thanks, Pizza Night. Why did I ever agree to let Pizza Hut have notifications? Especially at 9 o'clock at night. Like, come on. I've had dinner. It was a pie. It was just fine. The centre is run by an industry lobbyist and consultant for Syngenta, Jim Tozzi, who proposed the language of the Data Quality Act 
to the Congresswoman who sponsored it. The EPA complied with the Data Quality Act and revised its environmental risk assessment, making it clear that hormone disruption would not be a legitimate reason for restricting use of the chemical until appropriate testing protocols have been established. Steger told Hayes that he was troubled by the circularity of the centre's critique. In an email he wrote, their position reminds me of the argument put forward by the philosopher Berkeley, who argued against empiricism by noting the reliance on some scientific observation is flawed since the link between observation and conclusions is intangible and is thus immeasurable. It's getting very abstract. Nonetheless, Steger seemed resigned to the frustration of regulatory science and gently punctured Hayes' idealism. When Hayes complained that Syngenta had not reported his findings on frog hermaphroditism quickly enough, he responded that it was fought unfortunate but not uncommon for registrants to sit on data that may be considered adverse to the public's perception of their products, of course. He wrote that science can be manipulated to serve certain agendas. What you can do is practice suspended disbelief. The EPA says that there is no indication that information was improperly withheld in this case. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? After consulting with colleagues at Berkeley, Hayes decided that rather than watch Syngenta discredit his work, he would make a preemptive move. He appeared in features in Discover and the San Francisco Chronicle, suggesting that Syngenta's science was not objective. Both articles focused on his personal biography, leading with his skin colour and moving on to his hairstyle. At the time he wore his hair in braids, Hayes made little attempt to appear disinterested. Scientific objectivity requires what the philosopher Thomas Nagel has called a view from nowhere, but Hayes kept drawing attention to himself, making blustery comments like, Tyrone can only be Tyrone. He presented Syngenta as a villain, but he didn't quite fulfil the role of the hero. He was hyper and a little frantic. He always seemed to be in a rush or on the verge of forgetting to do something. And he approached the idea of taking down the big guys with a kind of juvenile zeal. Environmental activists praised Hayes' work and helped him get media attention. They were concerned by the bluntness of his approach. A co-founder of the Environmental Working Group, a non-profit research organisation, told Hayes to stop what you were doing and take time to actually construct a plan, or you will get your ass handed to you on a platter. Steger warned him that vigilantism would distract him from his research. Can you afford the time and money to fight battles where you are clearly outnumbered and to be candid outclassed? He asked. Most people would prefer to limit their time in purgatory. I don't know anyone who knowingly enters hell. Hayes had worked all his life to build his scientific reputation, and now it seemed on the verge of collapse. I cannot in reasonable terms explain to you what this means to me, he told Steger. He took pains to prove that Syngenta's experiments had not replicated his studies. They used a different population of animals, which are raised in different types of tanks, in closer quarters, at cooler temperatures, and with a different feeding schedule. On at least three occasions, he proposed to Syngenta scientists that they trade data. If we really want to test repeatability, let's share animals and solutions. In early 2003, Hayes was considered for a job at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke, he visited the campus three times and the university arranged for a real estate agent to show him and his wife potential homes. When Syngenta learned that Hayes might be moving to North Carolina, where its crop protection headquarters are situated, Gary Dixon, the company's vice president of global risk assessment, who a year earlier had established a $50,000 endowment funded by Syngenta at the Nicholas School, contacted a dean at Duke 
According to documents unsealed, Dixon informed the Clean of the state of the relationship between Dr. Hayes and Syngenta. The company wanted to protect our reputation in our community and among our employees. There were several candidates for the job at Duke, and when Hayes did not get it, he concluded that it was due to Syngenta's influence. Well, he was right. Richard DeGiulio, a Duke professor who had hosted Hayes' first visit, said that he was irritated by Hayes' suggestion. A little gift of $50,000 would not influence a tenure hire. That's not going to happen. He added, I'm not surprised that Syngenta would not have liked Hayes to be at Duke since we're an hour down the road from them. He said Hayes' conflict with Syngenta was an extreme example of the kind of dispute that's not uncommon in environmental science. The difference, he said, was that the scientific debate spilled into Hayes' emotional life. Well, still got you to choose the other guy. In June 2003, Hayes paid his own way to Washington so he could present his work at an EPA hearing on atrazine. The agency had evaluated 17 studies. 12 experiments had been funded by Syngenta, and all but two showed that atrazine had no effect on the sexual development of frogs. The rest of the experiments by Hayes and researchers at two other universities indicated the opposite. In a PowerPoint presentation at the hearing, Hayes disclosed a private email sent to him by one of the scientists on the EcoRisk panel. A professor at Texas Tech who wrote, I agree with you, the important issue is for everyone involved to come to grips with and stop minimizing the fact that independent laboratories have demonstrated an effect of atrazine on gonadal differentiation on frogs. There's no denying this. None. Don't deny it. The EPA found that all 17 atrazine studies, including Hayes, suffered from methodological flaws, contamination of controls, variability in measurement endpoints, poor animal husbandry, and asked Syngenta to fund a comprehensive experiment that would produce more definitive results. Darcy Kelly, a member of the EPA's advisory panel and a biology professor at Columbia, said at the time, I do not think the EPA made the right decision. The studies by Syngenta had flaws that really cast into doubt their ability to carry out their experiments. They couldn't replicate effects that were as easy as falling off a log. She thought that Hayes' experiments were more respectable, but she wasn't persuaded by Hayes' explanation of the biological mechanism causing the deformities. So I just read all of this out. <laughs> almost the entire article, and then realised I wasn't recording. So that sucked. Off I go again. The EPA approved the continued use of atrazine in October, the same month that the European Commission chose to remove it from the market. The European Union generally takes a precautionary approach to environmental risks, choosing restraint in the face of uncertainty. In the US, lingering scientific questions justify delays in regulatory decisions. Since the mid-70s, the EPA has issued regulations restricting the use of only five industrial chemicals out of more than 80,000 in the environment. Industries have a greater role in the American regulatory process. They may sue regulators if there are errors on the scientific record, and cost-benefit analyses are integral to decisions. A monetary value is assigned to disease, impairments, and shortened lives, and weighed against the benefits of keeping a chemical in use. Lisa Heinzerling, the Senior Climate Policy Counsel at the EPA in 09 and the Associate Administrator of the Office of Policy in 09 and 10, said that cost-benefit models appear objective and neutral, a way to distance ourselves from the chaos of politics. But the complex algorithms quietly condone a tremendous amount of risk. She added that the influence of the Office of Management and Budget, which oversees major decisions, has deepened in recent years. A rule will go through years of scientific reviews and cost-benefit analysis. And then, at the final stage, it doesn't pass. It has a terrible, demoralizing effect on the culture at the EPA. Now we're off to 2003, wrote Syngenta Development Committee in Basel, approved a strategy to keep atrazine on the market until at least 2010. A PowerPoint presentation assembled 
by the Global Product Manager explained that we need to atrazine to secure our position in the USA. The communication manager wrote in a notebook, Sherry Ford, that the company should not phase out ATS until we know about the Syngenta herbicide Paraquat, which has also been controversial because of studies showing that it might be associated with Parkinson's. She noted that atrazine focuses attention away from other products. Is there any herbicide chemical thing that doesn't have a really shitty side effects. Agenda began holding weekly atrazine meetings after the first class action lawsuit was filed in 2004. The meetings were attended by toxicologists, counsel, communication staff, the head of regulatory affairs. To dampen negative publicity from the lawsuit, the group discussed how it could invalidate Hayes' research. Ford documented peculiar things he had done. Keep coat on. Phrases he used. Is this line clean? If TH wanted to win the day and he had the goods, he would have produced them when asked. She noted that Hayes was getting into deep with the enviros and searched for ways to get him to show his true colours. In 2005, Ford made a long list of methods for discrediting him, of his work, audited by third party, asked journals to retract, set trap to entice him to sue, investigate funding, investigate wife. The initials of employees were written in the margins beside entries, presumably because they'd been assigned to look into the task. Another set of ideas uh, discussed at several meetings was to conduct systematic rebuttals of all TH appearances. One of the company communication consultants said that she wanted to obtain his calendar of speaking engagements so that Syngenta could start reaching out to the potential audiences with the error versus truth sheet. They sound almost like Scientology. And this would provide irrefutable evidence of his polluted messages. To redirect attention to the financial benefits of atrazine, the company paid Don Corsi, a tenured economist at the Harris School of Public Policy. Oh, they come up with these wonky names. They paid him $500 an hour to study a ban on the herbicide and how it would affect the economy. In 2006, they supplied him with the data and a bundle of studies and edited his paper, which was labeled as a Harris School working paper. He did disclose that they funded it. After submitting a draft, he had been warned in an email that he needed to work harder to articulate a clear statement of your conclusions following from this analysis. Corsi later announced his findings at a National Press Club event in Washington and told the audience that there was one basic takeaway. A ban on atrazine at the national level will have a devastating effect upon the U.S. corn economy. Hayes had been promoted from associate to full professor in 2003, an achievement that had sent him into a mild depression as it would, just like Buzz Aldrin going to the moon, coming back and being depressed and alcoholic because he'd done everything he'd set out to do. I don't know, it's hard to feel too sympathetic, but okay. He had spent the previous decade understanding his self-worth in reference to a series of academic milestones, and he'd reached each one. Now he felt aimless. His wife said she could have seen him settling into the life of a normal, run-of-the-mill successful scientist but he wasn't motivated by the idea of writing papers and books that we all just trade with each other. He began giving more than 50 lectures a year, not to just scientific audiences, but policy institutes, history departments, women's health clinics, food preparers, farmers, and high schools. He'd almost never declined an invitation despite the distance. He told his audiences that he was defying the instructions of his PhD advisor, who told him, let the science speak for itself. He had a flair for sensational stories. He chose phrases like crime scene and chemically castrated. And he seemed to revel in details about Syngenta's conflicts of interest, presenting theories as if he were relating gossip to friends. Syngenta wrote a letter to Hayes and his dean, pointing out inaccuracies. As we discover additional errors, you can expect us to be in touch with you again. At his talks, Hayes noticed that one or two men were dressed more sharply than the other scientists. They asked questions that seemed to have been designed to embarrass him. Why won't you share your data? One former student, Ali Stewart, said that everywhere Tyrone went, 
there was this guy asking questions that made a mockery of him. We called him the Axeman. Hayes had once considered a few of the scientists working with Syngenta friends. He approached them in a nerdy style of defiance. He wrote them mass emails informing them of presentations he was giving and offering tips on how to discredit him. You can't approach your prey thinking like a predator, he wrote. You have to become your quarry. He described a recent trip to South Carolina and his sense of displacement when my old childhood friend came by to update me on who got killed, who's on crack, and who went to jail. He wrote, I've learned to talk like you, better than you by your own admission. Write like you, again better. You, however, don't know anyone like me. You have yet to spend a day in my world. After seeing an email in which a lobbyist characterised him as black and quite articulate, he began signing his emails, Tyrone B. Hayes, PhD, ABM articulate black man. Syngenta was concerned by his emails and commissioned an outside contractor to do a psychological profile. In her notes, Sherry Ford described him as bipolar, manic, depressive and paranoid schizo and narcissistic. Roger Liu, Hayes' student, said that he thought Hayes wrote the emails to relieve his anxiety. Hayes showed the emails to his students who appreciated his rebellious sense of humour. Liu said Tyrone had all these groupies cheering him on. I was the one in the background saying, man, don't egg them on, don't poke that beast. Oh, he loves to poke the bear, though. Syngenta intensified its public relations campaign in 2009 as it became concerned that activists touting new science developed a new line of attack. That year, a paper in actor Pediatricia, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, Pediatricia, well, that's how it reads, reviewing national records for their 30 million births, found that children conceived between April and July, when the concentration of atrazine is high in the water. The author of the paper, Paul Winchester, a professor of paediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine, received a subpoena from Syngenta, which requested that he turn over every email he'd written about atrazine in the past decade. The company's media talking points described his study as a so-called science that didn't meet the Gaffor test. Winchester said... We don't have to argue that I haven't proved the point. Of course I haven't proved the point. Epidemiologists don't try to prove points. They look for problem. A few months after Winchester's paper, the Times published an investigation suggesting that atrazine levels frequently surpass the maximum threshold allowed in drinking water. The article referred to recent studies in environmental health perspectives and others that found that mothers living close to water sources containing atrazine were more likely to have babies who were underweight or had a defect in which the intestines and other organs protrude from the body. The day the article appeared, Syngenta planned to go through the article line by line and find one, all inaccuracies, two, misrepresentations, turn that into a simple chart. The company would have a credible third party do the same. They also got Elizabeth Whalen, the president of the American Council on Science and Health, which asked Syngenta for $100,000, and she appeared on MSNBC and declared the article not based on science. I'm a public health professional. It really bothers me very much to see the New York Times front page Sunday edition featuring an article about a bogus risk. Of course, it wasn't bogus. It was perfectly fine. She was just getting paid to say what they wanted to hear. I mean, you can have a fancy-sounding title, like an American Council on Science and Health, but it doesn't mean much when you can just buy their voice. Syngenta's public relations team wrote editorials about the benefits of atrazine and about the flimsy science of its critics, and then sent them to third-party allies who agreed to byline the articles, which appeared in a whole bunch of newspapers. When a few articles in the op-ed pipeline sounded too aggressive, a Syngenta consultant warned that some of the language of these pieces is suggestive of their source, which suggestion should be avoided at all costs. You don't want them finding out that you're just paying for it, 
After the Times article, Syngenta hired a communications consultancy, the White House Writers Group, which has represented more than 60 Fortune 500 companies. In an email to Syngenta, Josh Gilder, a director of the firm, wrote, We need to start fighting our own war. By warning that a ban on atrazine would devastate the economies of rural regions, the firm tried to create a state of affairs in which the new political leadership at EPA finds itself isolated. The firm held elite dinners with Washington influentials and tried to prompt members of Congress to challenge the scientific rationale for an upcoming EPA review of atrazine. In a memo describing its strategy, the White House Writers Group wrote that regarding science, it's important to keep in mind that the major players in Washington do not understand science, and that has not changed 10 years later. In 2010, Hayes told the EcoRisks panel in an email, I've just initiated what will be the most extraordinary academic event in this battle. He had another paper coming out, which described how male tadpoles exposed to atrazine grew up to be functional females with impaired fertility. He advised the company to get its PR campaign up to speed. It's nice to know that in this economy I can keep so many people employed. He quoted both Tupac and Shaka Zulu, never leave an enemy behind will rise once again to fly at your throat. Syngenta's head of global product safety wrote a letter to the president of the National Academy of Sciences and a few other places. He expressed concern that the publication with so many obvious weaknesses could achieve publication in such a reputable scientific journal. A month later, Syngenta filed an ethics complaint with the Chancellor of Berkeley claiming that Hayes' emails violated the university's standards of ethical conduct. He uh, posted more than 80 of Hayes' emails on its website and enclosed a few in its letter to the Chancellor. In one, with the subject line, Are you all ready for it? Hayes wrote, You're full of my jizz right now. In another, he told the Syngenta scientists that he'd had a drink after a conference with their Republican buddies. He wanted to know about a figure he had used in his paper. As long as you're following me around, I know I'm to shit. By the way, your boy left his pre-written questions at the table. Berkeley declined to take disciplinary action against Hayes. Good on him. University lawyer reminded Syngenta in a letter that all parties have an equal responsibility to act professionally. Syngenta certainly weren't. David Wake said that he'd read many of the emails and found them quite hilarious. He's treating them like street punks, and they view themselves as captains of industry. When he gets tapped... He goes right back at them. Michelle Boone, a professor of aquatic ecology at Miami University, who served on the EPA panel, said, We all follow the Tyrone Hayes drama, and some people will say he should just do the science, but the science doesn't speak for itself, as said before. Industry has unlimited resources and bully power. Tyrone is the only one calling them out on what they're doing. However, she added, I do think some people feel... He has lost his objectivity. Not her, though. Keith Solomon, a professor emeritus at the University of Guelph, Ontario, <laughs> or Ontario, who has received funding from Syngenta and served on the Eco-Risk panel, noted that the academics who refuse industry money are not immune from bias. They're under pressure to produce papers in order to get tenure and promotions. If I do an experiment, look at the data every which way, and find nothing, it will not be easy to publish. Journals want excitement. They want bad things to happen. Interesting point. A little biased, but okay. Hayes, who had gained more than 50 pounds since becoming tenured, wore bright scarves draped over his suit and silver earrings from Tibet. At the end of his lectures, he broke into rhyme. I see a ruse, intentionally constructed to confuse the news. Well, I've taken it upon myself to diffuse the clues so that you can choose and to demonstrate the objectivity of the methods I use. At some of his lectures, Hayes warned that the consequences of atrazine use were disproportionately felt by people of colour. If you're black or Hispanic, you're more likely to live or work in areas where you're exposed to crap. He explained that on the one side I'm trying to play by the ivory tower rules, on the other side people are playing 
by a different set of rules. Syngenta was speaking directly to the public where the scientists were publishing their research in magazines you can't buy in Barnes & Noble. Hayes was confident that the next EPA hearing there would be enough evidence to ban it, but in 2010 the agency found the studies indicating risk to humans were too limited. Two years later, during another review, they determined that atrazine does not affect the sexual development of frogs. By that point, there were 75 published articles on the subject, the EPA excluded the majority of them from consideration because they did not meet the requirements for quality that the agency had set in 2003. The conclusion was based largely on a set of studies funded by Syngenta and led by Werner Kloas, professor of endocrinology at Humboldt University in Berlin. One of the co-authors was Alan Halsmer, a Syngenta scientist whose job, according to 2004 performance evaluation, included atrazine defense and influencing EPA. After the hearing, two of the independent experts who had served on the EPA's advisory panel, along with 15 other scientists, wrote a paper complaining that the agency had repeatedly ignored the panel's recommendations and that it placed human health at the mercy of industry. The EPA works with the industry to set up the methodology for such studies, with the outcome often that the industry is the only institution that can afford to conduct the research. The CLOAS study was the most comprehensive of its kind, its researchers had been scrutinised by an outside auditor and their raw data turned over to the EPA. But the scientists wrote that one set of studies on a single species was not a sufficient edifice for which to build a regulatory assessment. Citing a paper by Hayes, who had done an analysis of 16 studies, they wrote that the single best predictor of whether or not the herbicide atrazine had a significant effect in a study was the funding source. In another paper in Policy Perspective, Jason Raw, an ecologist at the University of South Florida who served on an EPA panel, criticised the lucrative science for higher industry, where scientists are employed to dispute data. He wrote that a Syngenta-funded review of the atrazine literature had arguably misrepresented more than 50 studies, and made 144 inaccurate or misleading statements, of which 96.5% appeared to be beneficial for Syngenta. Raw, who has, con has conducted several experiments involving atrazine, said that at conferences I regularly get peppered with questions from Syngenta cronies trying to discount my research. They try to poke holes in the research rather than appreciate the adverse effects of the chemicals. He said, I have colleagues from whom I've tried to recruit and they've told me that they're not willing to delve into this sort of research because they don't want the headache of having to defend their credibility. Deborah Corey Schlechter, a former member of the EPA Science Advisory Board, said that she too felt that Syngenta was trying to undermine her work. A professor at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Corey Schlechter, studies how the herbicide paracat may contribute to diseases of the nervous system. The folks from Syngenta used to follow me to my talks and tell me I wasn't using human-relevant doses. They would go up to my students and try to intimidate them. There was this sustained campaign to make it look like my science wasn't legitimate because they can't afford to do bigger sample sizes. They've got to just suck it up. Syngenta denied repeated requests for interviews, but Anne Bryan, its senior manager for external communications, told me in an email that some of the studies I was citing were unreliable or unsound. When I mentioned a recent paper in the American Journal of Medical Genetics which showed associations between a mother's exposure to atrazine and the likelihood that her son or have an enormously small penis. Man, that explains a lot. I don't think I grew up near corn, though. Undescended testes are a deformity of the urethra, defects that have increased in the past several decades. She said that the study had been reviewed by independent scientists who found numerous flaws. She recommended that I speak with the author of the review, David Schwartz, a neuroscientist who works for Innovative Science Solutions, a consulting firm that specialises in product defence in strategies that give you the power to put your best data forward. That sounds so bad. Schwartz told me that the epi 
epidemiological studies can't eliminate confounding variables or make claims about causation. I've been incredibly misled by this type of study, he said. In 2012, in its settlement of the class action suits, Syngenta agreed to pay $105 million to reimburse more than a thousand water systems for the cost of filtering atrazine from drinking water. But the company denies all wrongdoing. Brian told me that atrazine does not, and in fact cannot, cause adverse health effects at any level that people would ever be exposed to in the real world environment. She wrote that it was, she was troubled by a suggestion that we have tried to discredit anyone. Our focus has been on communicating the science and setting the record straight. She noted that virtually every well-known brand, or even well-known issue, has a communication program behind it. Atrazine's no different. Surely getting near the end. The New Yorker is long form as fuck. Last August, Hayes put his experiments on hold. He said that his fees for animal care had risen eightfold in a decade and that he couldn't afford to maintain his research program. He accused the university of charging him more than other researchers in his department. In response, the director of the Office of Laboratory Animal Care sent detailed charts illustrating that he's charged according to standard campus-wide rates, which have increased for most researchers in recent years. In an online Forbes op-ed, John Enteen, a journalist who is listed in Syngenta's records as a supportive third party, accused Hayes of being attached to conspiracy theories and of leading the International Regulatory Committee on a wild goose chase which borders on criminal. By late November, Hayes' lab had resumed work. He was using private grants to support his students rather than to pay outstanding fees, and the lab was accumulating debt. Two days before Thanksgiving, Hayes and his students discussed their holiday plans. He was wearing an oversized orange sweatshirt, gym shorts, running shoes, and a former student, Diane Salazar Guerrero, was eating fries that another student had left on the table. Hayes encouraged her to come to his Thanksgiving dinner and to move into the bedroom of his son, who is now a student at Oberlin. Guerrero had just put down half of the deposit on a new apartment, but Hayes was disturbed by a description of a new roommate. Are you sure you can trust him? Hayes had just returned from Mar del Plata, Argentina. He had flown 15 hours and driven 250 miles to give a 30-minute lecture on atrazine. Guerrero said, Sometimes I'm just like, Why don't you let it go, Torrain? It's been 15 years. How do you have the energy for this? With more scientists documenting the risk of atrazine, she assumed he'd be inclined to move on. Originally, it was just this crazy guy at Berkeley, and you can throw the berserkly thing at anyone, but now the tide is turning. In a recent paper at the Journal of Steroid Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, that's a journal! What a name. Hayes and 21 other scientists applied the criteria of Sir Austin Bradford Hill in 1965, outlined the conditions necessary for a causal relationship to atrazine studies across different vertebrate classes. They argued that independent lines of evidence consistently show that atrazine disrupts male reproductive development. Hayes Lab was working on two more studies that explore how it affects the sexual behavior of frog. When I asked him what he would do if the EPA, which is conducting another review of the safety of atrazine this year, were to ban the herbicide, he joked, I'd probably get depressed again. Not long ago, he saw a description of himself on Wikipedia that he found disrespectful, and he wasn't sure whether it was an attack by Syngenta or whether there were simply members of the public who thought poorly of him. He felt deflated when he remembered the arguments he'd had with Syngenta-funded pundit. It's one thing if you go after me because you have a philosophical disagreement with my science, or if you think I'm raising an alarm, and there shouldn't be any. But they didn't even have their own opinions. Someone was just paying them to take a position. He wondered if there wasn't something inherently insane about the act of whistleblowing. Maybe only crazy people persisted. He was ready for a fight, but he seemed to be searching for his opponent. One of his first graduate students, Nigel Noriega, who runs an organization devoted to conserving tropical forests, told me that he was still recovering from the experience of his atrazine research a decade before. He'd come to see science as a rigid culture, its own club, 
an elite society, Noriega said, and Tyrone didn't conform to the social aspects of being a scientist. Noriega worried that the public had little understanding of the context that gives rise to scientific findings. It's not helpful to anyone to assume that scientists are authoritative. A good scientist spends his whole career questioning his own facts. One of the most dangerous things you can do is believe. Hmm. Okay, so that's it. Finally got there. I think I'll close New Yorker for now because I'll probably spend a lot of time on a couple of blogs I found. There's a list that I came across. It's funny because it's called the Top 20 Pop Culture Blogs and websites to follow in 2019. So clearly engineered to show up on a Google search. It's very well, it's very geared towards being at the top of any kind of Google search, basically. There's a, there's a word for that. Anyway, so it's a 20 top 20 list with 22 blogs on it. So the headline's a little misleading. And at the top, it says something like, do you want more traffic, leads, and sales? Submit your blog below if you want to grow your traffic and revenue. So obviously, it's kind of like a paid to be at the top of this list thing but i did click on some of the links and they're pretty interesting blogs once i figure out which ones i like i'll keep coming back to them for more interesting content it's funny the number of like the names are all very similar there's popular culture and theology pop culture nerd pop cultural studies pop culture collab retro pop culture blog christ and pop culture there's a lot of religious ones korean feminism sexuality popular culture museum of pop culture i think they've just googled any blog that has that term pop culture in it because there's a couple more but that's uh i'll leave it there for now we're all good and i hope you stuck with us if you did and oh boy i'm buying you a drink one day because well done and congrats to me for reading it twice and nearly at the end noticing it wasn't bloody recording but anyway it's getting late i've got to get up early which is good because it means i'm working and i can hopefully pay the rent next week and fingers crossed i work i managed to keep the shitty job go to the interview for the better job and then get that so that's what i'm really counting on along with doing all the other usual things i don't know if i'll be able to go to pax that is happening next week considering i have to borrow money to pay the rent driving down melbourne might not be the greatest idea even though i've got a media pass which is worth all kinds of money and self-respect so it gives me a bit of a an extra bounce in my step that someone likes what i'm doing or at least but got to be realistic and just maybe hunker down and save up again for a bit for now that's all i love you all peace out